Chapters twenty seven and twenty eight of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter twenty seven. Luigi Saviola. I come now to the most fateful day of my unhappy life, the day on which Luigi Saviola was presented to me. It was in November, but it was bright and sunny on the seashore. My companion and chaperone, once my English teacher, Miss Murray, was confined to the house by a slight attack of bronchitis, which she was carefully nursing, lest it should become serious. I was walking on the esplanade, attended by my French governess. At that early hour, ten in the morning, there were but few people out besides nursemaids and children. We were sauntering along slowly, when we saw coming toward us Anglesia and another young gentleman, walking arm in arm, apparently on the most friendly and even affectionate terms. In a few minutes we met face to face. Anglesia bowed, and then presented his companion. Prince Luigi Saviola. Madame de la Champ received the stranger's low bow, with all the courtesy of her nation. I do not know how I received him. I wore a little round turban hat, with a little thin grey gauze mask veil over my face, which completely shaded my features, while it enabled me to look at the stranger. I know not if there be any such thing as love at first sight, for the only real lasting love of my life was of slow growth, as you know, Abel. Oh, Abel, you do know that I love you. No, I do not believe there is such a thing as real love at first sight, but I do know that there is a madness that apes it. Some fascination made me look at this Italian from behind the shield of my gray veil, while he talked with my vivacious French governess, who quickly engaged him in conversation. He was young, quite youthful indeed, and— it is a very effeminate term to apply to a man, but he was beautiful, not handsome, but beautiful. He was of medium height and slender proportions, but he was perfectly elegant in form and perfectly graceful in gesture. His profile was purely, finely Grecian, his complexion pale and clear, his hair, eyebrows, and mustache of darkest brown, his eyes of darkest violet blue. Yet all this description gives but the outline of the youth's form and face, it cannot give the subtle and exquisite charm of expression which was the chief beauty of his aspect, nor can it give the lingering music of the most melodious voice that ever spoke. Are you displeased with me that I describe this stranger so minutely? I do it in cold blood, Abel, and only that you may understand and perhaps pardon the fascination he possessed over a sensitive, imaginative young recluse, such as I had been, and some instinct told me even then that this attraction was mutual though we did not exchange a word, and he could clearly see my face. After a few moments of courteous conversation, the two young gentlemen bowed and walked on. I went home in a dream, the face and voice of the young stranger haunting my spirit. The Frenchwoman made some few favorable remarks on the manner and appearance of the young Italian, but I did not reply. I could not. I passed the day in a vision. I was like one possessed. Two days later, young Anglesia made us the first call of many days. Madame de la Champ immediately beset him with questions about the young Italian. I said nothing, but listened with the deepest interest for his replies. This is a confession you know, Abel, and I mean that it shall be a full one. I listened with the most eager curiosity to hear all that could be told of one who had taken complete possession of my fancy and imagination, if not of my heart. And what Anglesia told us of Luigi Saviola did but deepen the profound interest I already took in the young stranger. 
He told us that Saviola was of a royal race, yet of advanced republican ideas, that for the expression of his principles he was a political exile. He was wealthy, and his wealth had been confiscated. He was now living in Brighton, on the wreck of his fortune, but was brave, cheerful, and heroic, as we had seen him. All this, as I say, deepened my interest in Saviola, and heightened my admiration for him. He was no longer a most charming person, but he was a hero and a martyr, a patriot and a humanitarian. And already I loved, adored, worshipped him, or believed that I did. You see, Abel, what a very foolish virgin I was. But then I was a motherless child. Anglesia was devoted to Saviola, and expressed the most profound esteem and admiration for him. He asked permission to bring the young Italian to call on us. It was an indiscreet request to make, but Anglesia was young and impulsive. It was an improper favor to grant, but my governess was vain and faithless, and had herself taken a fancy to the young Italian, so she consented that he should come. The intervening time between this day and the day of the visit was passed by me in a state of feverish anticipation. The next evening Anglesia brought Saviola. He was much more attractive than ever. He talked mostly with Madame de la Champ, but I felt that he looked mostly at me, at me, who scarcely ever uttered a word. This was the first of many calls, for some time made only in the company of his friend, and received by me only in the company of one or both of my governesses. How can I tell you the progress of that infatuation, hallucination, call it what you please, that kindled at the first meeting, and increased with every after-interview? Saviola never sat by my side in those early days, never took my hand, except at meeting and parting, when, with the reverential tenderness of his race, he would raise it to his lips, bowing over it. He scarcely ever addressed me with words, but with glances. How eloquently! All the wooing was done through the passionate eyes. At first I could not look at him at all, then only very shyly, and then at length my eyes seemed irresistibly attracted to meet his, even to seek to meet his. Oh, Abel, I am telling you everything. I am unveiling my heart to you. How will you receive my confession? Will you believe that there was no conscious sense of wrongdoing at the time? But indeed there was none. Will you believe that the stranger truth, that this was not love which I gave to Luigi? I did not know what love meant until I met the one love of my life, years after this lunacy. Oh, Abel, believe that this delirium was not love, though even I, knowing no better, mistook it for love at the time. It was madness, it was hero-worship, enthusiasm, but not love. This young Italian exile, beautiful as Adonis in his person, was idealized and glorified in my vision by his history. Remember how young I was, scarcely past childhood, and remember how I had lived isolated from all society, of my own rank and age, secluded in a desolate old manor-house on the Irish coast, whose very name, Weird Waste, could not tell its dreariness spending my solitary life and wandering by the seashore during the days, reading the old romances and poems left on the bookshelves of the old manor-house, and dreaming dreams and seeing visions that seemed to have come to be realized in my present surroundings, and crystallized in the person of Saviola. O oh, Abel, O oh, Abel, pity and pardon me if you can, for now I come to the part of my life which I shrink from approaching as a child would shrink from a fierce fire. Luigi came every day now, whether Anglesia accompanied him or not. I had learned a little Italian from Miss Murray at Weirdwaste, and now Madame de la Champ was continuing my studies in that language. 
Luigi found it out and begged her permission to bring me some standard Italian works, and to assist me in the translation. Madame, who looked upon me only as a child, and thought the attention of the young Italian so many tributes to her own charms, very affably consented, and so the exile became my unpaid master in Italian. The standard works he brought were all poetry, Petrarch's, Tasso's, and others' impassioned songs. These he translated for me in more ways than one, with his pen, with his tongue, and more eloquently and effectively still with his glorious eyes. As for me, I was far gone in madness before Luigi ever had the opportunity to speak one direct word of love to me. The inevitable hour came at last. I was reading Italian poetry with Luigi. Madame de la Champ sat near, working a screen in Berlin wool. Suddenly she got up and left the room to match some shade of worsted. The next instant Saviola was at my feet, and in a sudden tempest of impassioned words he told me what his eyes had told me long ago. This was the first time we had been alone since we had met on the esplanade, and he had seized the occasion. I could not reply to him, but I did not repulse him, and he saw that I did not wish to do so. "'Madame,' I whispered, as I heard the Frenchwoman's approach, which had not attracted his attention. He arose at once, and resumed his attitude of teacher. Madame entered. She had not been gone two minutes. Gradually, as the intimacy between Madame and the exile advanced, her strict surveillance over me was relaxed. I was still a child in her eyes, and she was a charming woman who had fired the young Italian with admiration, so she did not fear to leave Luigi and myself together. As for Miss Murray, she hated all foreigners, especially Italians, and most especially political exiles, so she was seldom present during Saviola's calls. We had many a tata tat and for a few weeks we lived happily in mere certainty that we could see and talk with each other every day. But then came a change. Luigi became restless and unhappy. He never smiled now. He often sighed heavily. He grew paler than his custom, and very thin. Madame, poor Madame, thought the youth was pining away for her love, and surely she did all she could to encourage him to speak plainly to her, all she could except to tell him in so many words that she was ready to marry him. One day she sent me out of the room, and was with him alone for an hour. I think then she really did propose to him, and that he saved himself without wounding her, for when she recalled me to the room, Saviola was gone, and she was in tears when she said to me, Ah, the poor prince! He is so honorable, so conscientious. He sacrifices, he immolates himself. It is for duty, it is for patriotism. We must cure him of all that." Chapter 28. A Mad Act So thanks to the blind vanity of the French governess, the young Italian and her pupil escaped her suspicion. We were Romeo and Juliet, we were Francesca and Paolo, Tasso and Leonora. Ah, I have often thought since that it was well, in the interest of poetry and romance, that the story of these lovers never carried them into matrimony, for such delirious passion is not the love that lasts through a long life. A disastrous day was fast approaching us. Luigi had been for some time suffering under the deepest depression of spirits. Madame looked at him and sighed, as if she understood his secret sorrow and could console him, if he were not so morbidly honorable and conscientious, if he were not so determined to sacrifice, to immolate himself on the altar of duty and patriotism. One morning she left the room on some errand that her restlessness suggested— in another moment Luigi was again at my feet, pleading with me now to give myself to him, 
or rather to take him for myself, for my lover, adorer, and husband at once and forever. He explained in rapid, vehement words that he was recalled to Italy, that he must go, that he could not and would not leave me behind, he would rather die than leave me. All this and much more he poured forth in a torrent of words, to which I only replied by tears. He went on rapidly explaining, lest we should be interrupted before he got through. He told me that all was arranged for our flight, that Anglesia would help us and keep our secret. "'Madame,' I whispered, as my quick ears heard a footstep on the hall outside. "'Meet me on the pier, four o'clock this afternoon. Come without fail, if you care to save me from self-destruction,' he hastily whispered as he arose and resumed his seat. It was not Madame who entered, however. It was Miss Murray. She bowed stiffly to the Italian, and then glanced searchingly around the room. Seeing no one present but Saviola and myself, realizing that we were tot a tot she frowned and sharply demanded, "'Where is madame?' "'She has just left the room,' I replied. "'Very improper, very irregular, most reprehensible. I shall write to-day,' she said, as she sat down bolt upright on the chair nearest us. Miss Murray was a conscientious woman, and she did her duty, there was no doubt of that. But her words and her threatened action decided me. Swift as lightning through my mind sped this question, "'What will be the effect of her letter to my father?' something that will separate me at once and forever from Saviola? I could not for a moment endure the thought. I looked at my lover, and my look said plainly as tongue could speak, I will meet you and go with you to Italy. And his eyes responded with equal clearness, I understand you, and I thank and bless you. Soon after, he took a formal leave of me, and raised Miss Murray's hand to his lips, and kissed it with devotional tenderness as he bowed. "'He is a very perfect gentleman, as indeed why should he not be, a man of his rank,' said the half-appeased old maiden lady. "'But all the same, my dear, he is young and unmarried, and a foreigner. And what is worse still, he is a political refugee. Always suspicious characters, my dear, always suspicious characters.' "'But Prince Saviola is well introduced, Miss Murray, and he is staying with the Middlemores. I ventured to advance in my lover's defense.' "'Very true, my dear.' but that does not prevent him from being a foreigner and a political refugee, persisted Miss Murray, in her most absolute manner. I cannot deny the fact, I admitted. And then I went to my room and packed a small handbag with the merest necessities for my journey. We still kept schoolroom hours for meals and had our dinner at two o'clock. Madame drank claret and Miss Murray stout at dinner, but both equally went to sleep in their easy chairs over the drawing-room fire, while well, I was supposed to be busy with my exercises until the five o'clock tea. Now was my opportunity. As soon as my governesses were both asleep in their chairs, I left the room, went up to my chamber, put on my outdoor dress, took my traveling bag, and left the house. Never was there before so perfectly easy and simple a flight. I walked down the King's Road until I reached the new pier, and there at the land end I met Saviola and Anglesia waiting for me. A close carriage stood within call. Saviola was very much agitated. It was Anglesia who spoke first. "'My dear little girl,' he said, as if he had been speaking to his niece or younger sister, "'I do not at all approve of these proceedings, but as I feel perfectly certain that you would go on without my consent and assistance, I think it is best, in the interests of your absent family, that I should aid and abet you in what you do, see you safely, legally, and regularly through it. Now do not be frightened. We shall take the train for London, thence the night express for Scotland. And tomorrow morning, as soon as we are over the border, you shall be married. 
I shall not leave you until I witness the ceremony and hold the certificate in my pocket. You will write to your father and plead your cause as no one but yourself can do so well. Perhaps he will storm, perhaps he will reproach you, but he will end in forgiving you, when he has considered all the circumstances. Here is the carriage. While Anglesia had been talking, Saviola had brought up the vehicle, and now he handed me into it and entered himself, followed by Anglesia. We drove at once to the station and took tickets for London Bridge. In five minutes we three were crowded into a coupe, and in a little more than an hour we were at London Bridge. Anglesia, who had resumed the role of friend, guide, and protector to the two young maniacs, took us to a quiet family hotel, where we three got supper in a private sitting-room. I assure you I do all this in the interests of my friends, your relatives, my dear. I knew that Saviola would, sooner or later, run off with you, so I determined to see you safely through it all, he explained again, as we sat down to supper. When the meal was over, Anglesia called a cab, and we all drove to King's Cross Station, where we were just in time to catch the night express on the Great Northern Railway. Anglesia took a compartment for ourselves, and took along also a basket of fruit, a bag of cakes, and a box of bonbons, for he knew that I was still child enough to love sweetmeats. He also took half a dozen of bottled lemonade and ginger beer. We none of us slept a wink that night, but laughed and talked all night, and ate and drank at intervals. I did not at all feel the gravity of the situation. I had not left anyone behind whom I cared much about, or to whom I thought I owed any duty, so I had no regrets or compunctions on that score. As for my dear father, time, absence, and negligence had really estranged us, or seemed to have done so. I even thought my marriage might bring us closer together, for Luigi had promised to take me to him as soon as he should consent to see me. So without a regret for the past, or a misgiving of the future, I yielded myself up to the joy of the present. It was a very happy journey. Excitement kept us all from feeling the least sense of fatigue. About dawn we stopped at a wayside station. "'Here we are,' said Anglesia, as the guard called out the name of the place. We alighted, and Anglesia, keeping up his role, proposed that we should go first to the hotel which stood on the other side of the track. "'We must get washed and combed and fed, my children, before we can present ourselves before the minister,' he said, speaking to us as if we were indeed children, and he were quite a venerable party. He was, in truth, younger by a year than Saviola. We went to the hotel, the Victoria, where two rooms were engaged, one for me alone and one for Anglesia and Saviola jointly. I went to mine to refresh my toilet. I had never dressed myself without the help of a maid in my life, and hardly knew how to go about it. However, I rang for the chambermaid, and with her assistance I took a bath and made a change of clothes. After this I went down and joined Anglesia and Saviola in the ladies' parlor. They took me to breakfast in the coffee-room, and soon after that we all three walked out in search of a minister. No marriage license was required in Scotland. We found a church with a parsonage adjoining. We all three passed through the gate leading into the grounds before the house, but only Anglesia went up to the door and rang the bell. A servant-maid opened to the summons. Anglesia spoke to her, and both disappeared in the house, leaving the door ajar. After a few minutes Anglesia reappeared at the door, and with a smile beckoned us to come in. We entered the hall, and were immediately conducted by our guide, philosopher, and friend, to the minister's study on the right hand of the hall. There stood a venerable man, with white hair, and clothed in clerical black, to receive us. Very few questions were put to us. 
and our answers, mostly given through Anglesia, were satisfactory. We were then asked to come up and take our stand before the minister, and in a very few minutes the marriage ceremony, which I believed had made us man and wife, was completed. Then the old minister gave us a solemn lecture on the duties we had assumed, and then he made a fervent prayer for us, and ended by giving us his blessing. Anglesia paid him a munificent fee, for which the old man gave him thanks. "'And a marriage certificate, if you please, Reverend Sir. I am acting on the part of this young lady's absent friends, and I must omit no necessary formality,' said Anglesia. The demand was unusual. Their certificate was considered unnecessary. The old minister told us so, and added that he had no printed form, and never had had any. "'Then we will take a written form. Just write that on this day, in this place—' You have united in marriage Luigi Saviola of Naples, Italy, and Elfrida Glennon of Northumberland, England. Sign it yourself as the minister, and allow me to sign it as a witness. It would also be better, too, if you could call in some member of your family to sign as a second witness. I think I have seen the young woman, who let us in, peeping through the door through the whole performance. Please call her as a second witness. The old man sighed, and sat down to the table where his stationery lay, and wrote out the certificate. Anglesia read it critically, expressed himself satisfied, affixed his signature as witness, and then put the pen in the hand of the maid, who had been called in for the purpose, and who now scrawled her name under that of Anglesia. And it was finished. End of chapter 28